Welcome to today's edition of AMSSM Sportcast on Injury and Illness Prevention. I'm your host, Dr. Megan Raleigh, and today I'm privileged to be joined by Dr. Margot Petukian, who's the Director of Athletic Services and Head Team Physician at Princeton University in Princeton, New Jersey. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much um, for having so let's me. Just, yeah, let's get right to it. So one of the fundamentals of being a team physician is il- injury and illness prevention. What are some of the strategies that the team physician can employ to prevent and modify risk factors? Well, strategies that team physicians can employ are really based on a few basic principles. Um, The first is sort of understanding what the pathophysiology of the injury or the illness might be. Uh, And then second, you know, understanding, sorting out what the risk factors might be um, for that particular injury or illness. And when we think about risk factors, we think of either intrinsic risk factors, such as previous injury or muscle weakness, inflexibility, imbalance, um, or psychological factors, or some break in the kinetic chain, um, or extrinsic risk factors, which would be more related to the inherent demands of the sport, the intensity of the sport, or the duration of play, uh, environmental issues, conditioning, and equipment. And then thirdly is just being able to sort of uh, have some kind of a process in terms of uh, an intervention and then being able to follow outcomes. Um, Strategies should be, you know, as individualized as possible and specific to the injury or illness uh, as well as the activity or the sport um, and understand that a lot of these programs are, are pretty limited and being able to implement them can be challenging. Great, thank you. And can you talk about some of the available resources to research specific injury data at the NCAA and high school levels? Well, there are uh, several resources that can give us uh, specific injury and illness data for athletes. And at the college level, we have the injury surveillance system that the, that is uh, put out by the, the NCAA they use sort of a definition of injury where if it occurs during sport and it requires evaluation, then it's considered a reportable injury. At the high school level, there are really two major data sets. One is the National Athletic Trainer Injury and Outcomes Network, or NATION, uh, which uses the same injury definition as the NCAA. And the other one that's probably uh, more comprehensive and is used a little bit Um, more uh, frequently is the high school reporting information online data system. The difference there is that they use an injury definition uh, which requires a restriction of um, participation, so a time loss injury, uh, with the exception that they track all concussions, dental injuries, fractures, as well as heat-related events, um, no matter what, in terms of, you know, whether there's time loss or not. Do you have any... uh uh, specific trends that have been noted from these databases with regards to injury rates? Well, we know that the, the um, team physician consensus statement uh, on injury and illness prevention, what we did during that was uh, review the data from the college level from 2008 to 2014 and the high school Rio data from 2005 to 2014. And some of the trends that we observed were that In general, injury rates are higher in competition compared to practice, uh, and that non-time loss injuries account for more than half of all injuries that we see at both levels. Lower extremity injuries account for about 50% of the injuries during games and practices at both the college and the high school level, and 15 to 20% of those are ankle sprains. 
Uh, ACL injuries, although they're not really frequent, nearly only account for about 3% of all reported injuries, account for the uh, significant time loss. And then upper extremity injuries account for anywhere from, I don't know, 19 to 24% of injuries uh, at the college level, and a little bit higher, 26 to 27% of injuries at the high school level. And about a quarter of these are shoulder injuries. And then finally, head and neck injuries account for about 8 to 12% of injuries uh, at the college level and 8 to 14% of injuries at the high school level. Concussions really account for 6% of all injuries at college, 4% at high school, uh, and that's one of the things that over the past three years we've definitely seen a significant increase in the rates of concussion as well as the overall numbers of concussion. In terms of medical conditions, you know, there's, it's harder to track these, but we do have sudden cardiac death, heat illness, and skin infections as sort of the most common medical conditions that we're able to track and have some injury data for. And, you know, sudden cardiac death is certainly a significant concern as it relates to college, college athletes accounting for, you know, 16% for college athletes compared to heat stroke, which is only 1%. Do you think that the increase in concussion rate is um, more due to education and more um, it being detected more frequently or us doing yeah. a better job of, of picking it up? Yeah, I think it's one of those, you know, injuries that I, I think you're exactly spot on in terms of what's happening. I think we're certainly much more aware of the importance of concussions, and I think we're, you know, much better at detecting it, uh, concussions. I think our, our student-athletes are also more educated, and so they're more likely to report their injuries as well to their healthcare provider. And then I think finally, you know, we certainly have had um, an increase in terms of understanding the importance of having athletic trainers on sidelines, and, and when you have athletic medicine personnel there, you're more likely to report those injuries. Oh, absolutely. No, I agree. Thanks. Now, you mentioned sudden cardiac death, and, and prevention of sudden cardiac death is frequent in the news recently. Can you speak to the most common causes in high school and college athletes? Yeah, the most common causes of sudden cardiac death include uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, and uh, this is the most common cause of sudden death in both high school and college athletes more commonly in men and uh, African-American athletes. Uh, the second most, most common cause of sudden death in the young athlete is commodio cordis, uh, and this is most common in sports like baseball, lacrosse, ice hockey, uh, as well as any recreational activity that involves a, a projectile or a direct blow to the chest. That's more common in, in youngsters aged uh, 7 to 16, and then you know, the other causes of, of sudden card, cardiac death include coronary artery anomalies, uh, ruptured aortic aneurysm uh, that you might see in, in a condition like Marfan's, um, myocarditis, or uh, arrhythmias. And that being said, what are, what are the most common cardiovascular issues that team, team physicians should screen and evaluate for? Well, I think that would be, you know, when we, when we think about preventing sudden cardiac death, I think that we're trying to help screen for any of the common causes. So when you think about, um, you know, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, coronary artery anomalies, ruptured aneurysms, and arrhythmias, you know, you have to think about the risk factors. And so family history, 
unexplained uh, syncope, uh, left ventricular hypertrophy, non-sustained ventricular tachycardia, low blood pressure or, or attenuated blood pressure response to exercise, uh, previous cardiac arrest, vigorous exercise, dilatation of the aortic root, chest wall trauma, or unexplained palpitations would be uh, the risk factors for all of those things. And then in terms of the screening, a lot of times it's being able to do a, a complete physical examination, getting a, a family history, and looking for any kind of findings on physical exam. And of course, this is really the one of the biggest focuses of the pre-participation screening that we do for our for our athletes. And I know that Cardiovascular pre-participation screening in athletes is discussed more detail in more detail in the 2016 AMSSM position statement on the same. Right. Um, but can you briefly comment on the role of EKG in particular for prevention of sudden cardiac death in uh, pre-participation screenings? Yeah, you know, I think it's certainly an area where there's a fair bit of um, there's still some controversy and. There are certainly a growing number of organizations that are including uh, EKG screening. Um, There is specific EKG screening interpretation criteria uh, for athletes that have been developed, and and this is an area that we've sort of seen expand over the past several years, you know, from the Seattle criteria to the revised Seattle to now the international criteria for um, being able to detect abnormalities in athletes. But, you know, certainly there are things that we can identify on EKG, including hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, arrhythmogenic right ventricular dysplasia, long QT, um, Brugada's or Wolf-Parkinson-White. But, you know, I think we have to also remember that there, you know, screening asymptomatic athletes does has does have consequences, which includes the cost of screening, the cost of the additional testing that you need to get, and the consultations that you might need to get, uh, false positives, and also false negatives. Um, So I think this is an area of controversy and also an area that, um, fortunately, we have a lot of leaders within the AMSSM that are um, doing the the work that we need to to try to sort out where, you know, where we go from here. Absolutely. No, I agree. Thank you. Um, Can you discuss um, briefly your thoughts on AEDs and the role of AEDs? Yeah, no, I think AEDs are really an important consideration and and should be considered uh, when you're trying to put together your emergency action plan. You know, when the second second leading cause of sudden death is commodio cordis, especially in our younger population, um, we know that there's a dramatic increase in survival with early defibrillation, you know, within the first three minutes. So, you know, certainly uh, all this is also true for other situations where arrhythmia is likely. So hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or other arrhythmias uh, oftentimes present with, you know, something that can be taken care of pretty quickly with early defibrillation. So, you know, being able to implement the emergency action plan that includes an on-site availability for an AED is certainly desirable for um, team physicians, especially in sports that include, you know, projectiles like lacrosse, hockey, and and baseball, uh, and wherever there's a risk for sudden cardiac death. Yeah, absolutely. And there's probably a role for um, uh, family members or spectators in the crowd, too, (laughs) for the AED, too. Absolutely. Um, Now, you also mentioned heat illness is one of the leading causes of death in high school and college athletes. What are some of the risk factors that we can be on the lookout for for heat illness? Yeah, I mean, heat illness is one of those uh, issues that we, I think is 
probably preventable. You know, I think that's the uh, concern that we we have. You know, it, it doesn't occur frequently, but it, it is also certainly can be certainly can be life threatening. So when we think about heat illness again, going back to trying to figure out, you know, um, understanding the pathophysiology and then thinking about risk factors and then trying to implement prevention, the risk factors for heat illness that are intrinsic include someone that's had a prior history of heat heat illness, someone that's got an increased body mass index uh, if they're ill uh, or they have other medical conditions such as sickle cell trait, spinal cord injury, um, if they're dehydrated, a lack of uh, climatization and low fitness. The extrinsic risk factors include, you know, the environment, certainly the weather, excessive physical exertion, um, multiple sessions in the same day, um, equipment, clothing that's um, not breathable, certain medications like the, the antidepressants, diuretics, antihistamines, or ADHD meds, uh, and then certainly supplements and energy drinks um, have been reported as being risk factors, and then also alcohol. So, you know, the the way that we can try to prevent some of these things is is really to modify the risk factors that you can in terms of, you know, obviously not participating if someone's ill uh, or dehydrated, doing what we can as it relates to, uh, you know, fitness and conditioning and acclimatization, and then maybe, you know, potentially looking at the time of day that that we're participating or minimizing, you know, activities in the middle of uh, the worst part of the day, making sure we're hydrating, making sure we're taking breaks, and making sure we're doing everything we can as it relates to affecting the ways that that our athletes participate. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I would would imagine there would be a role for education for the athletes too, especially when they're very motivated kind of like concussion, just making sure that they're able to report that. Exactly. Great. Well, let's move on to musculoskeletal injury prevention because that's certainly something that um, is of interest to our to our listeners as well. I know um, earlier on you had mentioned inversion ankle sprains as one of the being one of the most right. common musculoskeletal injuries, and uh, you briefly mentioned some of the risk factors. But can you can you discuss some of those and and talk about what the team physician can do to help prevent in in season ankle sprains? Yeah, you know, that means certainly is probably the most common injury for a lot of our sports. You know, the risk factors, probably the, the biggest risk factor for um, ankle injuries as well as a lot of our other uh, musculoskeletal issues are previous injuries. So, you know, having had a previous ankle injury, whether that is associated with instability of the ankle and or incomplete rehabilitation from an ankle injury, is certainly a risk factor. In addition, if you have a weakness of the perineal musculature um, or increased body mass index or even or heel varus are, are certainly some of the some of the risk factors. And then in the evaluation of uh, athletes, it should include obviously then a history of whether they've had a prior injury, uh, an evaluation that uh, that looks at the ankle ligaments as well as heel alignment, looks at ankle. Uh, muscle strength and flexibility, and then also addresses um, core musculature. And in terms of being able to prevent ankle injuries, there's certainly a fair bit of literature as it relates to ankle bracing or, or taping. Certainly, I think there's, you know, when we when we met and talked about this for the injury prevention 
team physician consensus statement, there was pretty good data that told us for for not only primary but also secondary prevention, ankle bracing uh, or taping was helpful, and that proprioceptive training was also effective for both primary and secondary prevention. Great. I think that's very useful information. Um, I know you had also mentioned um, ACL injury as being one of the injuries that, that kept athletes out the longest. Mm-hmm. So moving on, moving on to the ACL, what sort of interventions can we look at to reduce, potentially reduce ACL injury? Yeah, you know the dreaded ACL, right? Um, it is one yep. of the worst. I uh, just saw a kid last night with an ACL injury, and it's just, you know, it's so devastating because you, you do know that there's a long road ahead in terms of once you've had an ACL injury. There's actually, this is an area where there's there's a, a real good body of work and probably the most work that's been done in terms of looking at prevention. You know, certainly, you know, you have both contact ACL injuries and non-contact injuries and uh, the strategies and the risk reduction are are more effective for non-contact injuries. The cause of non-contact ACL injuries is is multifactorial with um, a lot of different risk factors that include neuromuscular variables, um, biomechanics, uh, the environment being having you know anatomy issues. Females are at greater risk, family history, and increased body mass index and. The you know obviously you can't some some of these you can't change but those are some of the the risk factors that we're aware of ACL injuries non-contact ACL injuries occur you know typically during deceleration landing or cutting and um, so there are certainly at-risk body positions when we when we think about trying to prevent and decrease injury reduction. You know, the team. It's important for the team physician to to get a, a history from the athlete, whether they've had a personal or or family history for or uh, ACL injury, some kind of a lower extremity assessment of their alignment, and then also uh, an assessment of their uh, core core strength and their lower extremity strength, their balance and their and their flexibility. Again, this is probably an area where there is good data to demonstrate that if you have a conditioning program that includes motor control, so core and lower extremity strength, balance, and flexibility, and then also uh, technique training that really um, emphasizes landing and and sport-specific skill programming, and then risk awareness. So there are, you know, programs out there designed for for soccer, for basketball, for lacrosse that are all a combination of strength, stability, proprioception, and, and, and uh, risk awareness uh, that have been shown to significantly decrease uh, the incidence of ACL injury. Great. Thank you. Um, on to a, a less dreaded injury, but also very common knee injury, um, patellofemoral pain. So certainly that's one of the most common injuries that we see for which few intervention programs have been shown to be effective. That being said, we see it all the time. And what do you recommend for an evaluation of an athlete with patellofemoral pain syndrome? And and what are some of the interventions that a team physician might implement to help these athletes? Yeah, you know, I think you're right. This is really a common injury or a common issue, especially in our in our female athletes. 
and the the evaluation is basically um, including you know a history of whether they've had a previous lower extremity injury and whether that's been rehabilitated. Um, sorting out their their volume of training and their participation, being able to discern how much um, issues they've had as it relates to patellofemoral type pain, and then on exam evaluating for you know you know looking at the patellofemoral joint, looking at lower extremity alignment, and specifically looking at their strength as it relates to uh, the core strength as well as the strength of the structures around the the pelvis in terms of hip abduction, quads, hamstring, um, and then also flexibility of the quads, hamstrings, and the iliotibial band. It's also important to look at their training surface and their shoe type and uh, and a a biomechanical analysis of their ability to jump and land or their ability to do a one-legged squat. And then interventions that team physicians can implement really, uh, again, is a... um, individualize as possible a, a sport and an activity-specific conditioning program that emphasizes uh, hip abduction, quad and hamstring strength, and then quad, hamstring, and uh, iliotibial band flexibility. It's also sometimes helpful to look at their, their uh, you know, the biomechanical chain, their kinetic chain, look at their foot alignment, and um, consider modifications as it relates to their shoe type. And then finally, trying to avoid the uh, exercises that might load the patellofemoral joint, such as lunges or deep squats. So that's sort of the, you know, you're, you're right that there's not been many intervention programs that have been shown to really be effective in preventing patellofemoral pain, but I think these are some interventions that team physicians can use to try to, try to modify how, how symptomatic someone might be. Yeah, great. Thank you. As we move up up the body um, to the shoulder, we, we can talk a little bit about the shoulder, hopefully. Um, so the disabled throwing shoulder usually has multiple contributing factors. And what are some of the considerations that you would use to evaluate for the disabled throwing shoulder? And how might the team physician intervene in preventing the development of a disabled throwing shoulder? Yeah, this is a really complicated area. And, you know, I think, you know, for the team physician consensus statement, we were blessed to have a a strong uh, group of orthopedists led by Ben Kibler, who's probably really done a lot of work as it relates to the disabled throwing shoulder. And that really is a concept that describes, you know, findings associated with injury, pain, and or decreased function in throwers and other overhead athletes. So, you know, the findings of disabled throwing shoulder include uh, anatomical injuries like slap tears or bicep tendon issues, labral tears, cuff pathology, other capsular injuries, physiological deficits, and alterations in terms of biomechanical motions. And so, again, we're, we're seeing on, ex- on exam uh, someone that's got uh, cuff weakness or fatigue internal rotation deficit at the glenohumeral joint or a, or a loss of, of range of motion in terms of internal or external rotation at the shoulder, inflexibility of some of the uh, chest musculature, weakness of some of the scapular muscles. And you can see, you know, um, dyskinesis of the scapula as you bring their arm into uh, abduction and into the overhead position and changes in the, in the kinetic chain. 
you know, as team physicians, as we sort of evaluate it, I think it's important to get a history of their the volume and intensity of their activity, how much rest do they get between their activities, especially like for, you know, pitchers, how much rest do they get between when they when they throw. If they've had a prior history of injury, if they have any kind of muscle imbalances, um, typically we see athletes that have a lot of muscular development of their chest but not much in their back, and so that's probably the biggest imbalance that we can see. And then, you know, it is this this idea of the kinetic chain. So when you see alterations of hip motion, that can certainly have an effect on the shoulder. And um, if someone's got other kinetic chain abnormalities in the lower extremities, that also can affect the shoulder. But I think, in, you know, we're trying to see the athlete that comes in with disabled throwing shoulder, probably most important is trying to get the history of of a prior injury, a sense of how much, what's the volume and intensity of their training, and then examining the shoulder as well as the the rest of the kinetic chain. Your your second question was sort of how do you prevent or how do you intervene in terms of trying to prevent this? And one of the most important things is probably to educate athletes, coaches, and parents in terms of the importance of, of rest. Uh, and the cause of sort of, you know, overload injury, which is what what we end up seeing, right, with this uh, injury. In addition, it's, you know, there you want to try to identify deficits that might occur on exam within the glenohumeral joint in terms of range of motion or with the scapula in terms of dyskinesis or other changes or deficits in the kinetic chain, whether, again, it's coming from the lower extremity uh, or the hip. And then in kids, you know, especially in the sports uh, like baseball where you try to, again, provide education and emphasize the, the importance of trying to stick with uh, a pitch volume per game and per season um, and trying to have some kind of oversight over the number of games that our, our athletes are playing. A lot of times they're playing on their school team and then they're playing on their uh, on their town team, and they might be playing in a, a showcase, and you know, a lot of times you you don't realize the number of uh, of pitches that they're actually participating in, or the the amount of overhead activities that they're involved in. And then you know, I, again, certainly working with our coaches in terms of assessing and encouraging um, you know the mechanic, the mechanical, the biomechanical part of their sport. So whether it's uh, throwing or whether it's serving. Um, making sure that they have uh, good form and good biomechanics. So those are the those those are the key areas uh, I think of prevention for the disabled throwing shoulder. Great, thank you. And I, I know also another another issue of area of concern for overhead athletes is certainly the elbow, and they may be at risk for elbow injury. And one of the one of the concerning injuries is a UCL tear. So can you comment on some of the risk factors for a, a UCL injury? Um, sure. Uh, you know, I think when you think about prevention of UCL injury, uh, again, it comes right back to that, you know, overarching theme of understanding the pathophysiology, uh, identifying risk factors, and then trying to figure out how do you put in a process to, to intervene, right? So for ulnar collateral ligament injuries, the main risk factors are you know, the volume and intensity of overhead activity. So as we were just talking about, getting a sense as to, you know, how many, what's their pitch count or how many, you know, serves are they, are they participating in. 
um, how many events are they involved in? You know, how many games or tournaments? Are they playing on multiple teams in multiple leagues? Uh, and what's the length of the season? So that kind of gives you, that's a big, that's probably the biggest risk factor is just the, the volume and intensity of what they're doing. Um, but other risk factors include poor throwing, hitting, or serving uh, mechanics, like we were talking about for the shoulder, tight or weak pronator and elbow flexor muscles, uh, shoulder and scapular dysfunction, other chain, uh, kinetic chain deficits. So again, the you know muscle weakness that might be in in the lower extremity, in the hips or the hamstrings or the quads, certainly all relate as risk factors for elbow injury. Athletes that perform while they're tired, and early single sport specialization. Those are all sort of what the group sorted out to be risk factors for, for UCL injury. And then in terms of trying to, you know, can you prevent these injuries? Is there something that you could do to uh, prevent ulnar collateral injury? A lot of that is really, again, educating athletes, coaches, parents, uh, in terms of the importance of uh, the cause of overload injury and the importance of uh, not only rest, but also, you know, avoiding all of the multiple events and games and leagues and teams and less less is sometimes more for, for some of these injuries. Other interventions really are addressing the risk factors, so trying to address flexibility or strength deficits, addressing other abnormalities in the shoulder joint or the, with the lower extremity in, in terms of the kinetic chain. In, in kids, again, with baseball, um, trying to emphasize the, the pitch volume per game and per season, as well as uh, some general oversight of the number of games that kids are playing, uh, and monitoring fatigue. I think the baseball literature is the one that actually did show that uh, fatigue had a big impact on the subsequent development of elbow injury. Uh, and then finally, just, again, this idea of assessing for and encouraging proper technique, whether it be throwing a baseball or serving, um, those are important as it relates to elbow injury. Great, thank you. And uh, one last question to wrap things up here, um, and I know we we briefly mentioned it earlier, um, but concussion. Uh, Concussion is discussed in more detail in another consensus statement, but it is an, an injury of interest in the media as of late. And I wanted to ask you, what are some of the injury reduction and modification interventions specifically for concussion? Yeah, no, I mean, this is a very important issue. And, you know, the most up-to-date consensus statement on concussion is the fifth concussion in sport international consensus statement from Berlin. I was really, really privileged to be uh, involved in that. Uh, and AMSSM has also been at the forefront. You know, it's, we're in the process of updating the concussion statement position paper that the AMSSM put out in, in 2011 under Dr. Harmon's leadership. But, you know, this is an area where it's like the, the if you could figure out a way uh, to reduce injury, uh, this injury in particular, it would be really important just because it is such a challenging I- injury. Uh, and I think, you know, one of the things that's uh, probably the most important is education. And again, this is, I think, probably why we're seeing more athletes come forward and why we're picking it up a little bit better is that athletes are 
educated in terms of the importance of reporting symptoms of concussion and understanding what the symptoms of concussion are. But the other areas that I think in terms of trying to decrease injury, this injury is to some, you know, enforcement of some of the rules that already exist and consider other rule changes. Uh, so I may think that's an area where, you know, you're trying to take, for example, in American football, one of the highest uh, areas of injury are kickoff returns. And, you know, when people are going at a high speed at, uh, you know, for, and they've been running for more than 10 yards and they're coming at a high speed. And so there have been changes in the rules as it relates to changing the kickoff so that it encourages touchbacks. Uh, And that in and of itself has actually led to a decrease in terms of the number of concussions. So looking at some of those rule changes that are, that are, uh, are possible, promoting fair play, maybe modifying techniques like like certain like tackling techniques and or checking techniques there's been some controversy as it relates to whether there's some improvement in terms of if you could improve neck strength um whether that might be uh a way to decrease injury i think there's sort of some conflicting data there is a sense though that if an athlete is prepared for an impact that they're neck musculature, you know, will tense up and better prepare them for an impact and and maybe lead to a, a lesser force. I think that some of the concussion laws, concussion policies that have been put in, in place have, have been shown to decrease the number of concussions that we see just because uh, they're keeping people accountable. And, you know, any athlete that has signs or symptoms is, you know, pretty much in every state now um, needs to be removed from play and evaluated by a, uh, an appropriate healthcare provider. And so, I, I mean, I think that those are sort of the areas where we've seen the most, the most movement, although it's still far from perfect in terms of this being a, a preventable injury. Absolutely. Well, that's great information. Thank you. Yeah. Um, well, Dr. Well, Dr. Patikian, I'd really like to thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk about injury prevention today. And I'd like to thank our listeners as well. And I, I hope that you all found this podcast valuable. And uh, you can read more about the topic in Selected Injuries, Selected Issues in Injury and Illness Prevention and the Team Physician, uh, a consensus statement. And that's all we have for today. All right. Thank you very much. <laughs>